Thank you for joining the podcast of the River Anglican Church. Today, priest Chris Meckley talks about discipleship, apostleship, and confirmation. So here is Chris. Good morning. Uh, I thought that I should begin today by acknowledging the uh, great American religious holiday that we're celebrating today, Super Bowl Sunday. Um, but as a lifelong Steelers fan, I uh, refuse to accept a Super Bowl that has a team from Ohio in it, um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, over the past several weeks, Jonathan's been talking, preaching about confirmation and the uh, four offices of the church, bishops, priests, deacons, and laity. Uh, partly because that's just a, that's a good thing to know about. But it's also in anticipation of our upcoming confirmation service on March 19th. Uh, now today, I'm not going to be specifically preaching about confirmation again, so don't worry. Um, but I'm actually going to be using the, uh, the lectionary passage. And if you don't know what the lectionary is, it's kind of like the suggested Sunday scriptures of the Anglican Church. Um, they can be kind of hard to use for people, especially maybe from a, a more Protestant background. Uh, because some of us don't like someone else telling us, you know, what we need to do. Uh, sometimes it can feel like we're not leaving room for the Holy Spirit to speak. But I actually think today's readings fit really well as a follow-up to these sermons on confirmation. And I actually find that when I use the lectionary, that kind of thing happens all the time. Uh, it's almost like the Holy Spirit's powerful enough to work even through, like, a preset uh Scripture for the day. It's kind of amazing how that works. So today we're going to actually be looking primarily at this passage from Luke 6 that Scott just read. And we're going to be doing a pretty close reading, so it would probably be good to have your passage out. I'd encourage you to do that, either in a physical Bible or if you have it on your phone. Um, and just so you know, I, I do work with you so I can tell if you're on, on the Bible or if you're on TikTok. Or, uh, so just keep that in mind. Now, we pray with me as we begin. Blessed Lord, you cause all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Now, as uh, we mentioned in the, the last couple of weeks, you won't find the term confirmation anywhere explicitly in the Bible. You won't find a service of confirmation. But in this passage, we do see shadows of the principles behind confirmation and of the vows that we take in that service. The passage begins with the choosing of the 12 apostles. And um, just as an aside, this has really nothing to do with the sermon, but I think it's a really beautiful picture of Jesus' prayer life when we see him. Uh, he's up on this mountain alone. He's there all night praying before he selects the 12 apostles. Uh, it's beautiful to see him in step and listening to the Holy Spirit. In that. Now, when we hear the word disciples, we often think of the 12 apostles. Uh, and we use those words pretty interchangeably. But there are some, some distinctions. So a disciple means a follower or a student of a particular teacher, whereas apostle means one who is sent. 
So it refers to a person who is uh, so still on. All right. So an apostle refers to someone who is sent on a particular mission. So although all the apostles are disciples, not all of the disciples are apostles. And so here in this passage, it's clear that there were many more disciples than just the 12 apostles. It says he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So we can kind of see here a foreshadowing of the different offices of the church. All followers of Jesus are called to be his disciples, even though all followers of Jesus are not called to a specific ministry in the church. Now, with the 12 apostles, Jesus joins a large crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all over who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so here again, we see a distinction between the crowd of disciples, the actual followers of Jesus, and the crowd of people from all over who had come to him either out of curiosity or for healing because power was coming from him and healing them all. So these aren't necessarily Jesus' followers, at least not yet. And in this passage, then, we have three distinct groups of people. We have the 12 apostles, the sent ones. We have the large group of disciples who have chosen to become followers of Jesus. And we have a great number of people from all over who've come to see him and to be healed by him, but have not necessarily made the decision to follow him. And when we read a passage like this or the parallel Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 or another passage where Jesus is speaking, preaching, and teaching, we can often assume that his teachings are just the general words for everyone. And so that can make it really difficult to understand things like, blessed are you who are poor, or blessed are you who weep, or blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. But all of Jesus' teachings aren't necessarily for everybody. And so when we study the Bible, it's it's really important that we try our best to understand the context behind the passage that we're reading. And so that can include questions like, what, what genre of literature is this? What happens before and after this particular passage? Who's the intended audience? And looking at this passage, we can answer some of those questions pretty easily by just digging in a little bit. And what genre of literature it is? Well, Luke tells us at the very beginning of his gospel that his goal is to compile eyewitness accounts so he can present an orderly account of Jesus' story. It's basically as close to a modern-day biography as we get in the Bible. What happens before and after this passage? Well, it's pretty early in Jesus' ministry. He's recently called and attracted his first followers. He's begun to get extremely popular in this area because, well, he's healing everybody. Um, It actually says that power was coming from him and healing them all. It's almost like the power can't be contained within him. But he's also begun to face opposition from the religious leaders, partly because of his popularity, but partly because right before this, the verses right before the passage that Scott read, Jesus declares himself to be the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath, which made the religious leaders understandably upset. It says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And then if we look ahead right after this sermon, we see A few examples of individuals who are held up as having incredible faith. And they're not priests or Pharisees. They're actually a Roman centurion and a woman who lived a sinful life. 
a Gentile and an enemy of the Jewish people, and an unclean sinner, not exactly who would expect to be exemplars of the faith. And if we look at verses 19 to 20, we can see into the intended audience. We can see that this sermon wasn't intended for everyone. The large crowd of people wasn't his audience. It says the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor. And several other versions translate this, uh, looking at his disciples as, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples. Uh, Now I just want to go into this for a minute and try to, to visualize this scene. Because when I read it this week, it kind of, I understood it in a, in a new way that I hadn't seen this scene before. When I picture Jesus speaking at times like this, I'm sure many of you do this, we picture him like he's portrayed in movies or pictures, you know, where he's standing up in an elevated place like I am, and everyone's sitting quietly and paying just the closest attention, just like all of you are right now. Um, and he's speaking in this heavenly voice, you know, blessed are you who are poor. But that's not really what the text is showing us. It says all these people from all over were trying to press in and touch him and grab him so that they could be healed. And these are probably pretty sick and dirty people who are mostly ritually unclean. And the crowd of disciples are probably getting overwhelmed trying to do crowd control. And Jesus has his eyes on the people because he's trying not to be trampled. Um, Not too long after this in Luke 8, it actually tells us that as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So he's being pressed, and he's grabbed, and he's jostled by the crowd, trying not to be trampled. And so it says he lifts his eyes towards his disciples. He makes eye contact with them, and he begins to teach them. And so he's probably shouting, because I don't know if you've been in a crowd, probably not for a few years, but maybe getting into Lane Stadium or um, at a concert, like I used to go to in my my college days. Um, It can be pretty loud. And so Jesus is probably shouting over this crowd. And the disciples are probably thinking, um... Read the room. <laughs> this isn't really the time for a sermon. But nonetheless, he turns his attention away from this larger crowd, and he begins to teach the apostles and the other disciples who've answered his call and chosen to follow him. And so piecing together this, this information, we can start to understand the blessing and woes a little bit better. Jesus is specifically speaking to his followers, the disciples, about what it means to be his disciple. It's kind of a warning to them that they're going to face what they're going to face if they continue to follow him. It's almost like he's saying, if you're stressed out by this crowd, wait until they become hostile. Wait until they're trying to stone us, because that's what's coming. But it's not just a warning, it's also an exhortation to them to remain faithful in the face of adversity. And it's a clarification that God's idea of blessing is not the same as the world's idea of blessing. These verses are an assurance that if they faithfully continue to follow him, they're going to face poverty and hunger and grief and hatred and insults and rejection. But through that, through all of that, they will be blessed. And when we don't read the Bible like this, when we ignore context and background and audience and things like that, we open ourselves up to interpret the scriptures in a lot of different and often wrong ways. With this very passage, you maybe have heard people interpret, blessed are you who are poor, or blessed are you who hunger now, as a call to care for the poor and hungry. And that's not what this is. Now that absolutely is a biblical concept. 
Caring for the poor and marginalized is all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. But that's not what this particular passage is talking about. The most important part of this passage, the key to understanding it, is the end of verse 22. It says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil, because of the Son of Man. Because of the Son of Man. These blessings and woes, all of them, are dependent on this phrase, because of the Son of Man. What Jesus is not saying here is that there's some special state of blessing that automatically comes with being poor or hungry or hated. And in the same way, he's not saying that it's necessarily a bad thing to be wealthy or well-fed or happy or well-regarded. What Jesus is saying is that if you are his true disciple, if you follow him faithfully, if you make him the Lord of your life, you will suffer on his account, but you will also be blessed beyond what you can imagine. What he's also saying is that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you claim that he is the Lord of your life, but you chase after riches or comfort or pleasure or admiration at the expense of truly following him and submitting yourself to him, yes, you'll be satisfied in the short term, but woe to you, he says. I tend to read this phrase, woe to you, as, as a warning, but really it's an exclamation of grief. It's like saying, alas, if we still use the word alas, which we don't. Um, but it's not, a war- it's, it's not a warning or a pronouncement of judgment. It's an expression of deep sadness and, and disappointment. It's like when your parents used to say, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Right? That's, that's a lot worse than, for, at least for me, that was a lot worse than, than anger. That's kind of what Jesus is saying when he says, woe to you. All you cared about was temporary wealth and comfort and pleasure when I had so much more to offer you. It reminds me of one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. He says, in the weight of glory, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so reading this scripture this week, I knew right away that the question that popped into my mind for me, the question that I had to ask myself, is who is the Lord of my life? Jesus' words here are a call to faithful submission to him in the face of adversity. And through that submission, we're promised blessing. And that submission is something that I don't always do well. So I had to ask myself, to whom or to what am I submitting myself? To whom or to what am I pledging my allegiance? Who is the Lord of my life? Now, as a follower of Christ, I know the right answer, right? I would say, of course, that Jesus is the Lord of my life. But too often, it plays out differently in real life. Later on in Luke 8, In the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the seed that falls among the thorns, which stands for those who hear the gospel. But they go on their way. As they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. How often are we 
choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. How often do these things take the place of Jesus in our lives? They demand our attention and our time and our energy at the expense of Jesus. The word worship, it comes from an, an old English word meaning worship, to give worth to something. And so when we worship God, we're giving him the worth that he deserves. But when we're spending our time and our energy on these other things, we're giving worth to those things over Jesus. We're worshiping those things over Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in these exclamations of grief, this woe to you section. Who among us hasn't been tempted or led astray by the temptations of wealth or comfort or pleasure or recognition? Tax season's coming up. Anybody out there ever get a little too wrapped up in your own personal finances? Has your job ever consumed you and taken the place of the Lord in your life? In election season, does a particular ideology or political party take that place? Is comfort or convenience sometimes the Lord of your life? What about your family, your church, or yourself? Are you acting as the Lord of your own life? In the past few months, I've been getting upset like more easily at my boys sometimes. Um, Partly, I think it's because in January, between vacation and COVID and snow days, we spent pretty much the entire month 24-7 together. Um, And anyone who spent that much time with me would um, start to have negative effects on them, I think. But, um, you know, going hand in hand with that, I, I realized that I get more upset when when they're inconveniencing me, when I'm trying to do something um, and they need something, or when they're constantly needing things from me, which is which is what children do. As if my time is so precious and so important. But when I get upset at that, it's because I'm making me the Lord of my life. I'm putting myself in the place of Jesus. I'm worshiping myself and my time and my freedom during that. And just so you know, I'm a terrible replacement for Jesus. I make a terrible Lord. And you make a terrible Lord. And your job is a terrible Lord. And your ideology is a terrible Lord. And your achievements are a terrible Lord. Now as disciples of Jesus, none of us, we don't consciously make these things the Lord of our life. But we all do it unconsciously through where we spend our time and our thoughts and our energy through what we ascribe worth to, through what we worship. And so we have to be constantly examining ourselves to determine who is my Lord. And it's not just something for uh, for pastors or missionaries or professional Christians. In this passage, Jesus isn't just talking to the 12 apostles. He's not just talking to those who were specially sent out. But he's talking to the whole crowd of disciples who were following him. And we can see when he says, when he says the woe to you, that some of them aren't going to continue following him. And that's a tragedy. And there are people in our churches who aren't going to continue following him. Who are going to make something else the Lord of their life and are going to follow that thing into woe and grief. But in the same way as this passage is meant for all the disciples, 
It's also meant for all who are disciples and followers of Christ today, for all who have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. I love our our Anglican baptism and confirmation services because we take these uh, really great vows. So listen to these and, and see how they line up perfectly with this passage. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? Do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament? Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? These vows, they they line up perfectly with what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, blessed are you when you keep these vows, when you make me the Lord of your life, even and especially when it leads to suffering for my sake. But woe to you, alas, if you take these vows, but are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Woe to you if you make something or someone else the Lord of your life. So think about it. Who is the Lord of your life? And when you leave here, when we go back out into the world, don't forget to ask yourself that constantly. It's a question that always needs to be at the forefront of our minds. Pay attention to where you spend your time and energy, to what you're giving worth to. Pay attention to what you're worshiping through your thoughts and actions. Pay attention to what you're passionate about. Examine yourself. Are you giving worth to Jesus, the true Lord? Are you spending your time and energy on following him and on submitting to the will of God? Or are you spending it on the empty promises and the deadly deceits of this world, on the sinful desires of the flesh? But self-examination, it's only the first step We can't stop at self-examination. When you examine yourself and you find that something else is taking the place of Jesus, something else has become the Lord of your life, the next step is to repent of that. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's not enough just for us to lament that we are following something else. We have to repent. And to repent means to turn away from something and to turn towards Christ. And so if you've been living under the authority of a different Lord, the answer is not to feel bad about yourself, but to repent. Turn away from that false Lord and turn towards the true Lord. Don't shy away in shame, but press into Jesus. Like these crowds that wanted healing. And then once we've received that healing, to follow him as disciples, to face poverty and hunger and grief and hatred for his sake. And it's not something that we have to do on our own. The church, both the big C global church and the little C local church like the river, it's not just a loose group of individuals. It's meant to be the unified body of Christ. We're meant to be stones being built together into the dwelling place of God. Through Jesus, we're adopted into a new family. 
And so if you're struggling to make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you find other things taking his place, reach out to somebody in the church. We're called to bear each other's burdens. And that means that sometimes we need to let others bear our burdens as well. Because making Jesus the Lord of our life and submitting ourselves to his authority, it's not always easy. The promise we're given here is not that God will make it easy for us if we follow him, but that we'll be blessed when we follow him, even and especially when it's not easy. But the key is that he needs to be the reason behind it. He needs to be the reason that we're facing those things, facing them for his sake. We're blessed when these things happen to us because he is the Lord of our life. So blessed are you who are poor, who hunger, who weep, who are hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected because of the Son of Man. And will you please join me as we close in prayer? Uh, And you can kneel if you're able. Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 9.15 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.